Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. I have begun to work on the next print edition of Movie John, which will pay tribute to film noir. Characterized by cynical heroes, stark lighting, dark and intricate plots, it will arrive just in time to celebrate Noir-vember. Make sure to follow Movie John on Instagram at Movie John to stay posted on all the latest news of our fall 2020 issue. In addition to working on the zine, I have decided to enter a screenwriting fellowship with my friend and film pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. In order to be considered, we will have to enter no later than November 15th. Therefore, we will be quite busy setting up a timeline to ensure that we meet the deadline. Over the next few episodes, I'll be sure to share details about the script and the writing process. Wish us luck, goblins and ghouls. And now, our feature presentation. All right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Well, fellow crypt dwellers, the movie I shall be uncovering today might be one of the hokiest, zaniest flicks that I have yet to dissect on the program. William Castle's 1967 comedy horror, The Spirit is Willing. Starring Sid Caesar and Vera Miles, this ghost hunt romp is sure to tickle your funny bone. In fact, here's something that might have you howling, goblins and ghouls. When I first selected this picture to feature on the crypt, I intended to dissect the corpse of Vera Miles. Upon starting my research, I came to find out she is still among the living and is at the golden age of 91 years young. Therefore, it isn't time for her to visit the crypt quite yet. But don't fret, goblins and ghouls. When the time comes, I'll ensure there is a comfy bunk with satin trimmings awaiting. Mwah. 
For now, instead, our corpse of interest on today's program shall be Sid Caesar. Born September 8, 1922, in Yonkers, New York, Sid would start a career in acting with his first role in 1946 at the age of 24. With 63 credits to his name, he would inevitably be best known for his live television appearances in such shows as Your Show of Shows and Caesar's Hour. Most audiences will find him recognizable, though, from the Grease musical pictures as the likable, enthusiastic Coach Calhoun. I am fond of that character and was pleasantly surprised that Sid didn't just spend time in the gym, but also made time to visit a haunted house. By 1967, when he starred in The Spirit is Willing, this would only be his sixth motion picture. One thing I found particularly interesting about Sid was that he was a saxophonist prior to becoming an actor. He had studied at the Juilliard School of Music. Later, he would go on to utilize his musical skills and play as a super hip jazz musician that would go by the name Cool Seas in many a television skits. He even performed with a satirical trio known as the Haircuts, consisting of Carl Reiner and Howard Morris. Much like his performance as Ben in The Spirit is Willing, his roles would often be comedic ordinary guys who find themselves in unrealistic situations. Such circumstances that his comedian idols, the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, and Buster Keaton would find themselves in. Sid was known for conjuring up many ideas, but he wasn't skilled in the writing department and depended on screenwriters for the dialogue. The Spirit is Willing is a hokey horror comedy set on the New England coast that was based on a novel entitled The Visitors by Nathaniel Benchley in 1964. The story opens in 1898 at a picturesque manor by the sea, and it is the home of a sea captain and his daughter. The sea captain is looking for just the right bachelor to marry off his daughter Felicity, played by Philadelphian Cass Daly. With her gawky appearance and buck-toothed smile, she may not have had a lot going on in the looks department, but there was one thing that made her awfully appealing to the sailor, Ebenezer, and that was her wealth. When dear old dad passed, he was set to inherit his ships and business. Someday you'd inherit my business. I crave the sea, sir. And my house. A wife needs a man who's near at hand. And all my ships. I'm not... Has quite a bit of character, doesn't she, sir? Yes, quite a bit of character. Dad? Unfortunately, Ebenezer got rather handsy with the maid Jenny, played by Jill Townsend, who I must add plays three roles in this picture. Wild stuff, which we will get into in just a little bit, my goblins and ghouls. So Ebenezer, like I said, gets handsy with the maid on his wedding night of all nights. And this, of course, doesn't sit well with Felicity, who inevitably stabs both Ebenezer and Jenny in the back with a meat cleaver. Take note, crypt dwellers. When committing such an act, you must ensure that your victim is no longer breathing. Felicity made this mistake, which regrettably cost her 
her life. When just before taking his final breath, Ebenezer chases her with the cleaver and kills her. Upon their deaths, the three immediately become specters, destined to haunt the halls of the seaside New England manor. From there, we are taken through some history with the use of some rather colorful illustrations and drawings. There's a rather catchy tune by the film's composer, Vic Mizzy, which you're hearing now. In this vignette, we witness families renting the home only to be scared off by the zany ghosts and their antics. We then cut to present day. Ben, played by Sid Caesar, and Kate Powell, Vera Miles, drive with their son Steve, played by Barry Gordon, and they drive through New England to their vacation destination. I would be doing a disservice if I didn't mention the famously well-known voice of Donatello in the hit cartoon show from the late 80s, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. That's Barry Gordon. I'm always thrilled to see who will show up in some of these old flicks. It's kind of like a seek and find. The spirit is willing. Your kisses are chilling. The spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. Another thing that I have to mention before we go further, my fellow crypt dwellers, is that with a runtime of one hour and 40 minutes, you will most likely find by the end of this flick, pondering scenes that could have been cut down. A little snip here, a little snip there, would have done this film a lot of good, and most likely would have made it for a much more enjoyable watch. The introduction, for example, although quite entertaining, goes on for a bit too long. Not to say that this movie isn't worth the watch, but just something to note. Okay, so the family arrives at the New England Manor, completely unaware of what awaits. Their son, Steve, could not be more of a teenager, which basically means a pain in the ass. Upon opening the door to the seaside chateau, who awaits behind the door but Mary Wicks with an axe? It's open. Happy holiday. Hey, this is not bad at all, is it? You scared me. We scared you. Look, lady. I heard a Oh, you're back. It's all right, sweetheart. It'll, it'll be all right in a minute. Keep it straight, though. Yeah. Great. I wasn't expecting you folks till later. Who are you? Miss Triff. I'm the cleaning woman. Have you ever tried using a broom? <laughs> Look, lady, I didn't know exactly when you were coming. It's getting dark outside in this house, you know. Or do you? Besides, a girl all alone has to be careful. Well, what do we owe you? Oh, a real estate man paid me. Well, nice meeting you folks. Lots of luck. Yeah, our pleasure. Miss Gloria Tritt quickly pedals away on her bike with her cleaning supplies in tow. But don't fret, goblins and ghouls, she'll be back. Almost immediately, the mischievous ghosts start causing a ruckus, which in turn causes young Steve to find himself dangling out of a window. Due to this, Steve decides he would much rather take the room on the ground floor. In his opinion, it will be a lot safer. 
Unfortunately, he doesn't find peace and quiet there either. Arriving in a plume of smoke from the basement is daughter Felicity, and she throws a pot at the kitchen shelf, and Steve gets blamed for it. Oh no. All right, mister, that comes out of your allowance. Oh, I didn't do it. Who did? The invisible man upstairs? Look, how am I supposed to know? Maybe the Joker who kept opening that goofy old door did it. That goofy old door is bolted. I know. I bolted it. Look, all I did, I looked around and I went back into my dungeon. And finding no food, you decided to punish us by breaking a window. I didn't go near the criminal window. Only guilty people yell. I'm innocent. All right, Mr. Dreyfus. Now clean up this mess. Your mother and I are going to the market. More mayhem ensues with the arrival of Uncle George, a wealthy bloke related to Steve's mother, Kate. The uncle arrives on his yacht, which is described as a ship with all the modern gadgets. This guy is a real character, donning a full captain's uniform that apparently has derived from his riches from selling toilets. I told you, this flick is zany. Even with the arrival of Uncle George, the son Steve is still getting blamed for the shenanigans caused within the house. You don't have to resort to violence just because you don't want me to stay for dinner. But Kate and I, we were in the living room trying to straighten up. Then who, who? in my room. I, I was playing my records. And Uncle George pushed himself down the cellar stairs. When Uncle George offers that Steve can spend the night on his yacht, it's not just Steve jumping at the opportunity. So are Ben and Kate, as they want some alone time. Well, unfortunately for Steve, the ghosts end up following him to the yacht. And it seems the lady spirits, especially Jenny, have taken a liking to the chap. Chaos ensues, causing the ship to sink. Don't worry, though. Uncle George has insurance and isn't too concerned with his yacht now being at the bottom of the lake. Uncle George and Steve head back to the manor, and the next day, in an odd turn of events, Steve decides to go job hunting after Ben convinces him that by getting a summer job, he would be able to save up for a car. While out and about, Steve runs into one of the locals at the drugstore. She not only gives him a tip on a possible job, but fills him in on the history of the old manor his family is staying at. Priscilla, who is played by Jill Townsend, which as I mentioned earlier, takes on three roles in this film. Priscilla is the second time she appears, the first being as the lustful ghost, Jenny. Priscilla ended up being my favorite character in the film, and I am sure, goblins and ghouls, that will come as no surprise if you end up watching it. With the mention of graveyards and seances, Priscilla was talking my language. Hey, you're the- Not really, but I do look just like her. Like who? Jenny. She used to be the maid in the house that you're renting. <laughs> well, she's sure a crummy maid the way she goes around wrecking antiques. She's a ghost. And sinking yachts with the- What'd you say? Jenny's a ghost, and so are Ebenezer and Felicity. They died in 1898. My family's related to Jenny. She never bothered to get married, but there's a long family tree that suggests she was very busy. I guess it was overactive glams. Anyway, my parents don't like to mention it too often, because Jenny not being married, well, that makes them all... Look, Priscilla, 
You're talking to a guy who is thinking of buying a new car. So don't give me any of that ghost goulash. Huh? Well, why don't we discuss it over a strawberry sundae? Well, I'm uh, slightly embarrassed at the moment, wallet-wise. But as soon as I land a job, I... Well, if you're looking for a job, drop in at Mother's Bar down the street. You mean your mother runs a saloon? Don't be gauche. And after you get paid, look me up. I hold seances for the unbelievers. Priscilla tells Steve about Mother's Bar, which, frankly looked like a place that I would love to grab a drink. It seemed like the type of pub you could get a basket of french fries or maybe some pierogies and wash it down with a nice pint of Belgian beer. Mother's Bar is also a place that Gloria Tritt hangs out. Remember her? The cleaning lady with an axe in the beginning of the film, played by loudmouth Mary Wicks? I say that in the most endearing way possible, but there's no getting around it. Mary was loud. All right, drink up, will you fellas? Raising that yacht's gonna be a whole day's job. Soon as we kill our beers, Fess. Them beers will die of old age before these two get off their duffs. There ain't no ghosts, you boob. Mother, will you make her shut her yap? I've had a request for you to shut your yap. The Constitution guarantees freedom of speech. Anybody thinks different is welcome to step outside. You know what, goblins and ghouls? Let's do step out for a minute and take a trip to the morgue and get to know character actor Mary Wicks a bit better. What do you say? Let's all go to the Why, hello, Dr. Carruthers. Good evening. It's Hitchcock. I wasn't expecting a Hitchcock voice. No? Well, I don't like you to know everything that you're going to experience. Did you notice that there is a slight chill in the air? Maybe that's what has brought on this Hitchcock voice. Well, yes. I mean, it's that time of year... I love it. It's my favorite time of year, the spooky season. Yeah, I Halloween is by far my favorite holiday. Ah, it feels so good to be back in the morgue among the cadavers. Who's on the slab tonight? Well, tonight we're uncovering the instantly recognizable, no-nonsense firecracker, Mary Wicks. There's death lurking in that house, and the cove and all around it. But one of them touched me. I was cleaning up the kitchen. That's where they got that cellar door. And all of a sudden, I feel a chill like them Eskimos must feel when they keep the window open. And then it happened. I hear this creaky sound. I look around. The cellar door is open. Close it. I go back to cleaning. Here it comes again. Creak. I go over to the door. Now there's a cold wind blowing up from the cellar like only the devil's icebox could make. I look around. Nobody but me. Ooh, yes. She was great. 
She pops up in so many movies that I watch, and even on one of my favorite TV programs from when I was a kid. I don't know if you watch this, Punky Brewster. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to waste any time. Let's slice her open. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her lanky structure. Number two, her candid bluntness. Number three, her flair to care, or just being a bit of a busybody. Number four, her perky ears, as the queen of the eavesdrop. And number five, her delightfully sarcastic wit, paired with heart. Now, Mary really has a fantastic and fun filmography that features movies that would be recognizable to folks spanning several decades. Yeah, something I have to mention as it relates to a corpse we autopsied on a previous trip to the morgue, when she got her start in acting, she actually served as an understudy to Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz. When I saw that and learned about it, I was like, hmm. I mean, they do kind of have like a similar they look similar, I should say. Yeah. But I can't picture Mary doing that voice for some reason. <laughs> yeah. But then again, I mean, when you kind of heard Margaret Hamilton speak, I would say normally in public, it wasn't like she spoke exactly like the witch. So. No. So what are some of your favorite films that she shows up in? Well, something I really love seeing her uh, do, I just love how she interacts with others she's really like uh, a part of a a team in that way that she's not looking to shine on her own but it's her interactions with others that I really love and so I've seen her in a few Betty Davis movies where their scenes together however small they may be they're just electric I love the two of them together for instance in Now Voyager expect you Miss Charlotte Yes, I am. I heard the car and tried to get down before you rang. Pickford's my name, Dora, not Mary. I'm the nurse. Now, we'd better not stand here gabbing. She's got ears like a cat. She heard that bell as sure as preaching. What's happened to Mother? She's fit as a fiddle. She has a heart. She denies it, but she has one. But then at her age, who wouldn't have? It's nothing serious. Ought to last her for years if she doesn't get excited. How long has a nurse been necessary? Well, I wouldn't say a nurse has ever been necessary. Mostly, she's used us to fetch and carry. There were three or four others before me, just in and outers. I lasted a whole month. Of course, she gave me the sack today, but that's because you're home. Now, you'd better hurry right in because she'll be waiting. When she waits, she gets mad. When she gets mad, that means brush the smelling salts. I left her sitting in there all dressed for tonight's party. That is, except for a gown, just as cute as a little red wagon. Oh, if you need any help, I'll be on the floor above packing my duds. I'll see you later. I love when she tells Betty Davis that she's put two tablespoons of sherry and sleeping powder in her mother's hot milk to help her become, well, sleepy. To which <laughs> Betty says, Dora, I suspect you're a treasure. And it's just a wonderful scene because her mother in that movie, well, you know. Yeah, I I completely forgot that Mary was in Now Voyager until I too started looking through her filmography and when she plays that nurse you just feel so bad for her because betty davis's mother in that movie is horrid 
Uh, that movie also has, though, one of the best, in my opinion, death scenes. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> we watched the film together, and I believe we were both laughing. I was cackling, for sure. Cackling. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but apparently Mary also served as a live-action reference model for Cruella DeVille in 101 Dalmatians. I haven't watched the film in a while, but I can totally see that. Yeah, that's really cool. I absolutely agree. And I think Cruella is a great villain. And now I love her even more, knowing that it was Mary filling that ridiculous fur coat. And now speaking of ridiculous fur coats, Mary was also in The Actress, which is a movie that we both love and wrote about for classic coroners on Movie John. And she definitely has that kind of aura about her. The other thing I wanted to mention is I know you're catching up with Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. The movie that always comes to mind when I think about Mary Wicks is White Christmas, which is a fun little flick, uh, but her busybody tendencies are on full display in this movie. And in fact, even find her getting into a bit of trouble. Have you watched that movie yet or no? I have seen it, but I don't. I really don't remember much about it. Okay. It's one of those that, like, I always have to watch it every Christmas, and it drives Ben pretty insane because <laughs> the music, the songs can be a bit annoying, but yet I love them. Gotcha. I, I definitely recommend you checking that out when you get a chance. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that many of the characters that we dig up often will reprise like similar roles like with Mary she tended to play like these professional women like secretaries nurses housekeepers and even nuns and would always be pretty much I feel slinging like these witty quips to people as you mentioned earlier describing her different characteristics and I just always love that her characters speak their mind. Like they are not afraid to say something. And I like that a lot. Yeah, I do too. She was, she never played like a really meek, quiet character. She always just told it like it was. Yeah, I, I was shocked to learn how many times she did play a nun. Apparently, she was in a couple of movies that spawned sequels, and I stumbled upon this Los Angeles Times article. It was written around the time that I guess Sister Act came out, which I have actually never seen. Apparently, they asked Mary in this article about her playing a nun and wearing the costume. And she remarked that it had become habit-forming, saying, I enjoy it. You don't have to worry about getting to the set early and getting your hair done. Because, you know, you're just going to cover it up anyway. So I thought that was kind of funny. I love that philosophy. And, alright, so here's the thing. Sister Act. So you haven't seen Sister Act? I have not. Okay, well, I watched that movie constantly as a kid. Now, when I mean constantly, it was the kind of thing where, like, I had the VHS tape, it would be done, I'd just rewind it and start it over again. I'm not <laughs> embarrassed about it. I'm not. I, I have to say, I haven't, I don't think I've really seen it in probably, like, 
25 years. It's been a while, but I can still imitate Mary Wick's singing parts. Would you like me to imitate them right now? Of course. <laughs> no, you have to see the movie first, and then we can oh. have a sing-along. All right, and fine. And really, like, I'd like to join a choir. So... Like, I'm not going to lie, the songs in this movie, <laughs> I'm still talking about Sister Act, the songs in this movie rule, and I would become a nun simply to join a choir. I'd do oh it. Oh my god. Don't dare me. I'd do it. You would be an extremely wild nun, <laughs> causing so many problems. What is the place? The convent. That's where they live. The convent, yeah. You would be such a problem. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> In the spirit of Willing, the movie that I am dissecting on the crypt, I love how most of her scenes were in the bar. Mm -hmm. And I bet it would have been so fun to grab a beer with Mary. Again, going back to her no-nonsense, you know, way, mm -hmm. would have been so fun to chat with. I also learned she was friends and neighbors of Lucille Ball. And that's actually another lady I would grab a beer with. Like, I could see her drinking at Mother's Bar. Oh, yeah. Imagine how much fun that would be. Yeah. We should get a beer, the four of us. That'd be fun. Well, and Mother's Bar is like totally my type of bar. <laughs> like it just looked perfect. By the sea. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, she was great in this movie. I loved how in her first scene, she's holding an axe. Yes. And then in every remaining scene, she's holding a beer. So she was ready to kick ass if need be right away. And then the scene at the beginning where she rushes away on the bicycle. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. But definitely the fastest cyclist in the history of time. Well, she has to get to the bar. Well, yeah. And I mean, I understand because I agree with you about the scenes in Mother's Bar. She's sitting there. She's drinking beer at the bar. She's doing shots, picking fights, talking ghosts. She's one tough cookie. I love that they had her take a shot. <laughs> I enjoyed that. The whole bar scene was, again, probably one of my favorite parts of the film. Me too. I love how the guy who is, you know, kind of complaining about her and he complains about her to the the bartender and he says something like, are you going to tell her to shut up, whatever. And the bartender is very proper in the way that he speaks and he says, I've had a request for you to shut your yap. <laughs> and then he complains again and he says, I've heard from that party again concerning your big mouth. Just all her scenes in this movie made me laugh. Yeah, how did she die? I, I didn't look into that further. Well, she suffered from numerous ailments in the final years of her life that resulted in her being hospitalized, where unfortunately she fell and she broke her hip and she needed surgery and she died of complications following that surgery on October 22nd, 1995, aged 85. However, in the spirit of accurate lab reports, I'd like to introduce a file that I have started called Corpse Connection. Corpse Connection. 
where we make connections between the fine folks we study together. Are you ready for tonight's connections? Yes, and I am so thrilled about this segment. Please share more. Okay. Well, tonight we have four connections. So, as discussed earlier, she played the understudy to Margaret Hamilton, who was featured in episode 16. Number two, she made three movies, Now Voyager, June Bride, and The Man Who Came to Dinner with Betty Davis, who was featured in episode 12. The third connection was she was a member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre Troupe with Agnes Moorhead, who was featured in episode 18. And last but not least, something fun to check out is an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that she did with Thelma Ritter, who you briefly discuss in episode six. I believe the episode is called The Babysitter. Mercy! Oh, you must be that detective. Say, I've got a few ideas about that murder. I'll bet you have. <laughs> well. Where's your mother, honey? Shh, Mrs. Armstead, take it easy. She's really had a rough day. Oh, there you are, Lottie. Boy, do you look a mess. Well, come on, honey, refreshments. We got a lot of talking to do. Now. Oh! I'll move over. Isn't this exciting? Look at that. Babysitter, question in murder. It's in every paper. Your name, your picture, everything. Gee, it makes a person afraid to go out on a job. You know, I was supposed to sit for the Thompsons tonight, but now... <laughs> I bet you never want to babysit again. Oh. oh, you'd always be imagining a killer was sneaking around or something. Oh, come on, Lottie. I bet you're just dying to tell me all about it. Huh? Move oh. over, will you? Well, if that's your attitude. I watched it. And you would like it. You should check it out. Yeah, I will. I actually wonder if I own that one because we have a few seasons of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I got into that show a while back and it's funny, I've been thinking about it lately because I started watching The Twilight Zone and I was like, oh, I need to figure out which Alfred Hitchcock Presents seasons I don't own. Because I think Ben and I have like maybe one through three, uh, but it's a okay. fun program. I really got into it for a while. Check out the episode with our friends, Mary and Thelma. I love Thelma too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think it might be time to grab the blankie. What do you say? I think so. All right. Sleep tight, Mary. Good night. Sweet dreams. And now... On with the show. Welcome back, Crypt Dwellers. Hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. Let's get back to the ghosts, shall we? In watching this film, I became rather interested with the ideas of cold spots and poltergeists. According to paranormal investigators, when you experience a chill or a sudden decrease in temperature, this is an indicator of spirit activity. It should come as no surprise. Priscilla was well-versed in ghost life. She wants to assist Steve with his ghost problem, requesting his presence in the graveyard. Now, do you believe me? I can prove there are ghosts. Meet me in the cemetery tonight. Priscilla, there are no ghosts. You're on. Okay. Now be in the cemetery tonight. I know. 12 midnight. That's only in books. See you at 8 after okay. the ghosts have had dinner. 
Upon arriving in the graveyard, Steve finds that Priscilla is not alone. She pops out from behind a tombstone, along with a young boy that she just so happens to be babysitting. Now, I'm not a huge fan of kids, but I gotta admit, this child was rather entertaining. Who, who's he? Miles Thorpe. Oh, what's he doing here? His parents think he's in bed. I'm his babysitter. <laughs> I suppose you see ghosts too, huh? All the time. When Mommy and Daddy come back from the movies and come in to see if I'm sleeping okay, I tell them about going to the cemetery and seeing all the ghosts and everything. Sure you do. He does. They just don't believe him. Parents never believe little boys. Okay, Miles dear, I'm ready. Parents not believing in ghosts is also a problem for Steve. Ben and Kate don't want to believe that their vacation home is haunted, continuing to blame him for all the chaos. That is until Ben experiences his own ghost sighting, bringing to question that maybe his son isn't a liar after all. Ben heads to the library to conduct some paranormal research. Libraries are so great, goblins and ghouls. If you don't have a library card, you seriously don't know what you're missing. They have it all, whether it is biographies about your favorite film stars or how to have a nice conversation with ghosts. You can learn so much at your local library. Oh, pardon me? Yes? <clears throat> I wonder if you have any books oh, on the... Yes, of course. Uh, ghosts up your chimney. Poltergeist, that's German. It means noisy ghost. Well, how did you know what kind of books... That You're I... Mr. Powell, aren't you? Yes, I am. Well, most people usually come in here a few minutes after they've arrived at the Twitchell house, and uh, so I like to keep the stack ready. Of course, some people just get into their car and it's <laughs> arrivederci. <laughs> yeah. Have they done much damage yet? Who? The ghosts. Uh, look, miss. Weems. Carol Weems. I'm unmarried. Well, congratulations. The library is also where we are introduced to the third character played by Jill Townsend, Carol, the librarian. With her help, it is decided the best way to get rid of ghosts is to help solve their problems. Felicity wants to find love, so Steve and Ben decide to throw a masquerade party. Steve gathers items requested by Felicity, perfume, nylons, and lingerie. I told you about the Twitchell house, didn't I? There will never be peace in that house until Felicity finds a man, thus freeing Jenny and Ebenezer. Don't fight it, Ben. Accept the inevitable. Of course, Steve and Ben's plans get taken out of context. Ben's wife thinks he's having an affair in overhearing a conversation on the phone, and Uncle George believes that Steve might be partaking in wearing women's clothing after learning of all the feminine products he's procured from the drugstore, and he ends up inviting a psychologist to the party, played by none other than Gomez Adams, or AKA John Aston. And if that isn't wild enough, there's the masquerade party in which everyone is dressed up like they are in a play of Treasure Island. Vera Miles is getting sloshed and ghosts are running amok and a cleaver even makes an appearance. Simply put, there is a lot going on here. 
a little bit too much, if you ask me. All in all, the party does end up going over quite well, especially for Felicity, when she finds her true love after all. And if there was any question, at the end of the flick, William Castle reminds us that the people in this movie are fictitious, and only the ghosts are real. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in checking out the flick, it is available to rent or purchase digitally. However, I bought a DVD copy from Olive Films. It may not be a movie that I revisit often, but overall, I found it to be a fun little watch. In my next episode, I will examine another ghost tale and pry open the coffin of Gail Russell to dissect the 1944 film, The Uninvited. I will also be joined by my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, to autopsy yet another character corpse. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. So take note, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review, or send me an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show, or a corpse you want me to dig up, please let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear in this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. And if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silberstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you're wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw in a Movie or email at dear I Saw in a Movie at gmail.com. And if you're old fashioned like your favorite little grave digger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA. 19145. All of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. Plenty money, 1941 You lost it all and then away you run Why don't you do right Like some other men do 
get out of here and get me some money too. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Carol the librarian, a psychopath in or out of the coffin. A warning to all that visit my grave. Yes, it is true. Once a psycho, always a psycho. Goodbye, film pals. Yeah.